Today I'm going to talk about death contemplations and why they're important in Buddhism, why they're very important in the Dharma in general. This is going to conclude the last few weeks of body-focused meditation. So in the traditional sort of layout with the Dharma, we've got body as the first foundation of mindfulness and the first aggregate. And within the exploration of the body, we include what we call our death contemplations. It's basically a contemplation on impermanence. And most of the time we include that implicitly in a lot of our teachings, but I thought I would take tonight to just really give you some details on why it's important and how traditional Buddhist teachings view the empowering views of the fact that we're impermanent and that we have mortality that we have to deal with as human beings. So I'm going to talk about that today. And that will conclude our focus on the body over the last few weeks. And then I believe next week I'll probably move on to feelings. And I think we might just move through the four foundations of mindfulness since we're on a roll. So I think over the next few weeks we'll move through the other foundations of mindfulness and maybe move into the aggregates a little bit as we get into fall. Let us get cozy and we will do some meditation. Let us plop into the present for a bit. I'm going to get my timer hooked up here, my clock, my bell, and let's do some sitting. As always, I invite us to take several long, slow, deep breaths when we begin our practice. In through the nose and out through the mouth. This helps to relax the nervous system, prepare ourselves for present moment awareness. Just some long, slow, deep breathing. It can always help to intentionally relax the body on the exhale, relaxing all the tension from the day and contraction we've stored up. So much elusive tension and stress and contraction of the heart and the mind over the course of the day, binding up the muscles, creating tension, here and there throughout the body. Breathing out the contraction, breathing in the relaxation and ease. Breathing out the negativity of the day, of the month, of the year. Breathing in grace and ease. Turning away for a moment or two from the outer chaos. Turning inward to find a place of presence, safety and security where we can reconnect with ourselves, 
direct contact with present moment experience, breathing in and breathing out. As we begin with slow, deep breathing, it can be helpful to do a quick body scan, bringing awareness to the posture of sitting. Just a little check-in, litmus test. How does it feel to be sitting in this moment? See if you can be really awake to sitting and sitting posture. Sensation of being upright, feet touching floor, hands touching hands. Sitting and breathing in this moment. And if you find any tension, discomfort, anything in the body that feels out of place, we just bring that part of the body into awareness and gently hold it while we breathe deeply, bringing breath energy to that part of the body, imagining the healing power of the breath, relaxing the muscles, taking away the pain, Bringing back a place of centeredness and ease, focus and well-being. Sitting, breathing, embodied beings. And with the body sitting and at ease, we might bring awareness to mood, to thoughts and feelings. How is the heart feeling in this moment, awake and aware to mood? There may be a sense of expansion or contraction. Could be a sense of openness restfulness, ease. There might be a sense of contraction, anticipation, anxiety. There may be neutrality, neutral sensations. We welcome all the sensations of thoughts, feelings, and moods as they express themselves in the body holding them gently in awareness in this moment as they arise and pass away. Body sitting, body thinking and feeling, all impermanent changing phenomenon, arising and passing away with each breath.
And having established a sense of presence with sitting body, breathing body, thinking and feeling body, we might intend to gladden the heart and mind and remind ourselves that we sit in practice to cultivate joy and compassion, well-being for ourselves and well-being for others. And we might do this by calling to the altar of our hearts something, something that is going well in our lives, something that brings us joy, brings a smile to our face. In spite of it all, here we are, gathered together in practice. That says at least something is going well. The blessing of group practice. Bring to mind something that brings you delight, brings you joy and ease. So with this heart that's gladdened, a mind that's open, awake, present, we begin to continue our journey inward by finding a place of presence that we can call home. We can choose a breathing spot just above the lips, beneath the nostrils. We can be mindful of the rising and passing away of breath as it expands the chest and the abdomen. Or we can bring awareness to any part on the body where we can feel sensations, breath energy. We might choose to rest awareness gently on our hands sensations arising and passing. We might choose to rest in presence at the top of the head, perhaps the face. Anywhere that sensations can be noticed is a perfect place for presence, a perfect home for awareness. Awake and aware, breathing body, feeling body, thinking body. Each moment has a beginning, a middle and an end, an arising, a small peak and then the passing away, each thought, each feeling, each breath, impermanent, changing phenomenon. 
And we sit here as embodied beings with the intention to be awake and aware to each passing moment. Full direct experience of life. In breath, out breath. Awake and aware, direct contact with the living, breathing body.
Thank you for that. Let's take a mindful five-minute break and come back for some Dharma talk and discourse. All right, so tonight I wanted to put a little capstone on our month of body-centeredness meditations. You know, we've talked about the elements, we've talked about um, 32 body parts, we've combined the two, um, we did a little bit of primer even before that, so it's been three or four weeks. We threw in a little Dharma talk on worry on one of those weeks, but I really was wanting to focus on really getting solid with the body, really reminding ourselves that the Buddha starts with the body, we always bring awareness to the body, even when we're doing other kinds of meditations. The Buddha encourages us to consider Vipassana within the framework of the body. So when we're working on feelings, we're looking at feelings as we experience them in the body, right? When we're doing thoughts and we're looking at what our thinking is like, we're doing this in the framework of the body. So the body is really important. It's not only the place that we start, it is a continuous meditation. We keep awareness grounded in our body. Sitting, standing, walking, lying down, all of the different postures. Body awareness is so important in the Dharma. So I think it's important that we do one last meditation uh, Dharma talk on death contemplation. And it's strange because I'm kind of excited about doing the talk. But of course, the topic can seem a little dark and a little negative. Um, and I'm going to talk about that as well. Like how we see death contemplations... Um, oftentimes as Westerners versus in traditional Buddhist practice and in Buddhist cultures where dealing with death and talking about and meditating upon impermanence was really built into the culture. So for us, it could be a step outside our comfort zone to talk about death in this way, the way I'm going to talk about it tonight. So a couple things I wanted to mention before I get started, just for some context, is... First of all, when we talk about death, inevitably we're sort of, let's see, edging up to talking about what comes after death, right? So when we talk about the finality of death, we're also talking about, well, then what happens after death? And that sort of leads into conversations about rebirth or reincarnation. And I'm not going to make any claims to know what happens after death, but I will tell you what the Dharma theory is, and then you can make your own assessment based on your own experience. I don't want to leave that part out. I don't want to leave the cosmology out of the discussion because I think it's important to take the Dharma as the Dharma and to really understand what the theory is so you can be exposed to it and make up your own mind based on your own experiences in meditation. But inevitably, when we talk about death in light of the Dharma, we can't help but at least nudge our way over towards talking about rebirth, reincarnation, and stuff like that. So... I will talk about the theory of that, but I certainly can't give you any advice or any direct experience of what lies beyond that because I haven't had any experiences in that matter. So I'll talk about what I know and I'll give you some context and we can see how that lands for you. The other thing I wanted to uh, share with you is I really noticed I had the intention of doing the Dharma talk and then I went to my library and got some books out and was wanting to do some reef reflection um, I pulled out a book by Bonte G on the four foundations of mindfulness that I have and because uh, I knew he had a section on death and there's a couple books I have that has some good reflections on death. And so I sat down and I opened the book and my intention was to read the chapter on death. And then 
about five minutes later, I realized that I had skipped the chapter on death and just went to uh, something else. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I won't do a death contemplation. And I caught myself in the midst of being averse to the topic. Like I just totally got waylaid. And then I started trying to talk myself out of it. And I could see clearly that there was a contraction of the heart. There was this sense of oh, I don't know, maybe death is too dark or maybe this is sort of too taboo to talk about. And there's nothing here that is, but I can see my own aversion right off the bat in regards to talking about death, in regards to meditation. My mind pushed it away and I went to something basically better or happier. So it's interesting to see how our responses to death arise and pass away because we all have a certain relationship to the concept of death, the concept of impermanence, and the concept of what lies after death. So we already have a relationship, either personally, culturally, socially, around the issue of death and dying. And so it's important to remember that when we do these type of meditations, it can be really helpful to be aware, what is your relationship with this concept of death and dying? What is your relationship to impermanence now before you engage in the Dharma practices? Getting in touch with that can be really helpful. Another thing, I wanted to just say is that, you know, oftentimes in American Buddhism, death contemplations are often taught as a quote unquote advanced practice, or they're done only on retreats with experienced meditators. The, the death contemplations and talking about death is not an advanced practice per se. It's in many Buddhist countries, it's one of the first things you do in meditation practice. You do your body parts, you do your elements, you do cemetery contemplations. It's just a part of the jam. It's not necessarily some advanced practice. I think the reason we tend to leave them out or the reason we tend to push them towards folks who have had a little bit more meditation experience is just for this reason of taboo. It's not something that we normally talk about. It's not something that people want to jump in and have conversations about. So I just wanted to like remind ourselves of this kind of inherent aversion, this inherent taboo nature of the conversation and remind us that death contemplations are not just spiritual contemplations, but they are contemplations that deal with just basic well-being and psychological healing. It's not just a spiritual contemplation. Talking about the impermanent nature of what we are, really coming face to face with our own mortality is about living a healthy life. It's about being honest and authentic with our own nature. So it's not an advanced practice. It's not just a highfalutin spiritual practice. It really is just about facing the truth of who we are as human beings and trying to use that truth to increase our happiness and to increase our ability to really be comfortable with this nature of impermanence. So that's the context for the evening. One of the things I thought I would sort of run down, like I said earlier, is some of the things you can pay attention to as you move through your day so you can identify the ways that you relate to this concept of death and dying. And mostly what I think is helpful is looking for the moments or the times when there is some kind of contraction or aversion to the subject matter. And in those moments, it can be really helpful to try to turn towards that and ask ourselves, what am I really afraid of? What is the real internal conflict in my heart or mind when I'm turning away from this concept of death and dying? One of the things we can be aware of 
and most of this would be sort of socially, is again, the taboo nature of the subject. It is interesting that sometimes you'll hear people say, well, talking about death is dark. Talking about death is pessimistic, right? Or negative. So that's a cultural interpretation of the topic. So it can be helpful as you move through to take note when you think that yourself, or if you're in a social sphere or a setting in which you're aware that other people see it that way. Oftentimes, I think that came up a little bit for me when I was thinking of doing the talk, because I might have thought to myself, well, who wants to come for an evening of death contemplation? So I'm immediately giving into the taboo nature of the subject and thinking it's automatically something that's dark or negative versus an opportunity for all of us to gain some experience in the Dharma that can bring well-being. So be on the lookout for that in your world. It could be your social sphere or your spiritual sphere where we inadvertently automatically assume that death and dying is a negative pessimistic or lack some kind of optimism. And that if we spend time contemplating it, we're just giving into some kind of darkness because that's not what it's designed to do. Another example of the way we push away death is our worship of youth. And we see this everywhere, especially in North American culture. But this need to celebrate and to reify those who look younger. We try to look younger. We want to look younger than our age. We compliment people when we say, oh, you look so good for your age. We have this idea that aging is bad. And so it can be helpful to really get in touch with your relationship with how you perceive aging. Because aging is the process of dying. So the more negativity we have towards the aging process, you can rest assured that beneath that, there is even more negativity and more aversion towards the dying process. And so as a culture, we really don't like to talk about death. So we really don't like to talk about aging. We try to keep this sort of sense of the youth and younger folk in the camera view and those of us who are older and aging out of view. And so there's this sort of segregation, there's this ageism. And what this really has to do with spiritually is an aversion to death and dying and not wanting to be reminded or wanting to have that something that we are looking at because we see it as being so negative. So keep an eye on that in your own life. You'll see it all over social media, of course, but how you respond to the aging process is indicative underneath of how you are relating to the dying process, the fact of impermanence. I wanted to give a counter example to this sort of anti-aging attitude. At the time of the Buddha, the, the monks would, when people passed away, there's, there was various ways that they did this, but one way was that when people passed away, they wrapped them in these white shrouds, essentially, and would put them at the burial grounds for the animals to eat, right? And the monks would go and watch this process of the decay and use the bodies as objects of meditation. And it was considered a spiritual practice. It was considered a healthy practice, and it was part of the meditation. On top of that, the monks would take the shrouds and they would use them to make their robes. So there's quite a few stories of the Buddha going to these charnel grounds and getting these robes and sewing them to make the monk's robes. So you see a completely different attitude towards death and dying, something that's considered to be a natural part of life, 
something that's considered to be a natural part of spiritual practice and being face to face with it, really face to face with the process of death and dying was something that was considered very healthy. And so that's in stark contrast to us not even being comfortable with our skin wrinkling or our hair going gray or things like that. Like we shy away from even the slightest attitude towards you know, the aging process. So you can see a real difference in the Dharma from the very beginning about how death and dying is considered a natural part of the human experience. It is very much accepted as something to be in touch with and be present with. So based on that, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we look at death and dying from a Buddhist point of view. Because in Buddhism, there is quite a bit of view related to this process. And so just to remind you, so in the Eightfold Path, the first fold of the path is wise view. And one of the aspects of wise view encourages us to take the reality of our lives as objects of meditation, right? We take breathing, the very process, life-giving process, as meditation. We take sitting, walking, lying down as objects of meditation, right? We engage in skillful speech. We do things like skillful action, right? And so we have skillful livelihood. All of these things are using mindfulness in real life experience. And so part of wise view is encouraging us to live a life of spirituality. Spirituality isn't separate from living. It's infused into the very fabric of how we move through our day. So a wise view is a view that looks at life as an opportunity for awakening, that looks moment to moment at the suffering that happens all around us and uses the very suffering to transcend. So because of that, we see that wise view also encourages us to take death as a natural part of our experience and as an object of contemplation. And there are a few views I thought I'd remind us of because I think they're really helpful. The first one, oh, actually I should give you a quote. Let me grab my book, give me a second. There's an interesting quote from the Buddha. Okay, I'm going to read this quote. And this is one of the views. It goes something like this. Once the Buddha was speaking with his disciple Ananda about the causes of death, the Buddha asked, If there were absolutely no birth of any kind anywhere, that is, of gods into the state of gods, of celestials into the state of celestials, of spirits, human beings, demons, two-legged creatures, four-legged creatures, winged creatures, and reptiles. If there were no births of beings of any sort in any state, then in the complete absence of birth, would we be discerning aging and death? Certainly not, Ananda replied. Therefore, Ananda, the Buddha replied, it is clear that there is one cause, source, origin, and condition of aging and death, namely birth. Namely birth. One of the views about death in the Dharma is that it's caused by birth, which is kind of a quirky little way of looking at it. Because normally when we think of what we call death in the West, we usually look at death and we say, oh, it's caused by a disease, it's caused by aging, it's caused by... In the Dharma, death is looked at as a natural byproduct of birth 
and living. It is caused by being born. Being born gives us a ticket to living, but it also gives us a ticket to dying. It comes with the package. And this is slightly different than we see it usually in the West. And what this speaks to really is that from a Dharma perspective, death is not considered an event per se, right? The living is the dying, right? Living is aging. Living is decay. Living is the dying process. Goenkaji once said, the Dharma is all about the art of living and the art of living is all about the art of dying. And this is very much a Buddhist view that to be born being born is the moment. The rest is all dying. It's just a pathway towards what we call death. Because they look at death not as much as a single event, but as a whole entire process to be complicate, uh, contemplated, it is not seen as this big, shocking, traumatic experience. Because it is designed to be looked at as the entire process of the human experience. The cause of death is birth. Birth happens and then dying is the rest of the journey. So that's a different way of looking at it. It's not normally how we're invited to look at death and dying. Another aspect of this is that in the Dharma, Buddhists tend to look at death <clears throat> as having three different kinds, basically. So the way we look at these three different kinds of death, we have momentary death. So moment to moment, the self is arising and passing away. Breathing is arising and passing away. Thoughts, feelings, attitudes, everything is arising and passing away. So from a Dharma point of view, each moment is a death and rebirth. Each moment, a new identity arises and then passes away. And the next one is a brand new identity. A brand new self arises. Same with the body. The Buddha acknowledged that skin cells arising and passing away, blood cells arising and passing away. So we look at the moment-to-moment -moment experience as a type of living and dying, being born and reborn moment-to-moment. -moment. So there's a momentary death that happens that is considered to be a part of the living process. What's interesting is that, you know, Literally, you know, people talk about, you know, every certain amount of days, entire organ systems are basically new because the cells die off and new cells are reborn. But there's something like 2 million cells are come into existence every second as 2 million other cells die and pass away. So we really see that the Buddha is correct in that every moment we are different. We are a new self every moment. And looking like that, looking at that clearly as a type of birth and death can be really helpful for our meditation practice. So that's the momentary, moment to moment death and rebirth. And then we have conventional death that we're all familiar with that comes at what we call the end of life. We have the regular death at the end of life. Now it's important to know that in the Dharma, what we call conventional death is not conventional at all because that death leads to another rebirth in Buddhist cosmology. So life from a Dharma perspective is the constant birth and death that happens over and over and over again. So in the Buddhist cosmology, 
There is the living and dying and the dying and living are all one continuous process. We wake up, we're born, we go through the process of dying. At the end of that particular life, there is a rebirth. And again, like I said earlier, I can't speak to what happens there, but this is what the theory is. And then something, not an essence, continues on and there is another life and so on. The only actual death in the Dharma perspective is awakening or enlightenment from a traditional Buddhist point of view. From, additional, from a traditional Buddhist point of view, we live, we die, and are reborn until we're awakened. Once there is awakening, whatever that energy is, or however you want to call it, is not reborn. So then that is the actual permanent death. That is where there is some eternity, so to speak. And again, I can't speak to that personally, but it's important for you to know that when we talk about the Dharma and death contemplations, the Buddha very much believed in rebirth. The idea of enlightenment was considered a freedom from rebirth, and that's how the entire Buddhist cosmology is built. So there is the momentary death arising and passing away. There is the conventional death that we call death. And then there is awakening, which is its own passing from a Buddhist perspective in which you are not reborn. So that's the Buddhist cosmology when it comes to death and dying. And whether you believe that or not, I take a very agnostic approach to the rebirth process. But whether you believe that or not, I think it's important to know that because as you're reading about the Dharma, it's important to know that all of these tools and techniques you're practicing were born in that context. So the Buddha was definitely a believer in this, and this is how the Buddha described. In fact, when you read the stories about enlightenment, the depth of enlightenment is always talked about in terms of how many rebirths left before full liberation. So this is a very common Buddhist idea, this rebirth so momentary death, conventional death, and then awakening. These are the different ways that in the Buddhist cosmology, this type of change was seen. Another view that's really important that most of you have probably heard before is this idea that goes something like this. And oftentimes you'll hear it in a form of a chant. Basically translated, it is life is short. Death is certain. The time of my death is unknown. Life is short, death is certain, the time of my death is unknown. This view is considered very skillful in the Dharma because it acknowledges the fact that death is with us the entire time. That life is short, we're not here that long. Death is certain, it comes with the package, right? When we sign up for living, we sign up for dying. You can't get away from it, it's built into the ticket. So. It's not only certain, but we don't know when it's going to happen, right? We know it's going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to happen. Acknowledging this is considered a spiritual practice. Acknowledging the fact that life is short, death is certain, and that we don't know how long we have in this incarnation, so to speak, is considered a very skillful framework. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why this framework is skillful and how you can use it to encourage well-being. But for now, just know that this is a significant Buddhist view. Death is considered the ultimate context for living. It is considered to be skillful to always remember, oh my gosh, I don't know how much longer I'll be able to live, to love, right? To be engaging with friends, with family, with practice. And this, this realization 
and I'll talk about this further in a bit, this realization creates a type of urgency to live and to live the way you want to live because you know death essentially is coming and that it could be next month or the month after that. So in the meantime, why not get the most out of life? Why not use that as an inspiration to live more fully rather than pushing that idea away and denying it and then just living like it doesn't matter. So the Buddha really saw death as really being a motivator for living well, for practicing well, for loving deeply. It was something that was considered the big context for life. So let me use those views to talk about the benefits, because this is where the death contemplation I feel like is really significant. Generally speaking, the Dharma is about truth. It's the truth of happiness and the truth of suffering and the truth of freedom from suffering. And as we discover those truths, we cultivate joy and tranquility. We cultivate compassion and wisdom. We get a deeper connectivity with ourselves, a deeper connectivity with others. So the truthfulness of the Dharma is really experiential. We feel it in our being, right? We feel awakened. We feel more loving. We feel more wise. We can see that we're acting more skillful. So in the Dharma, we seek truth in that way. And the fact of our death is truth. So we don't turn away from it. So it just at a very superficial level, part of the reason that from the very beginning of the trainings that we are encouraged to acknowledge the fact of our death is because it's true. It's just simply the fact of human experience. And like everything else in the Dharma, we try to open ourselves up to the truth of what is so about the world moment to moment. We don't push anything away. We allow room for everything and we bring everything, including the fact of death into awareness and we use it as part of the path. Another really amazing thing about this context of death is that the idea, the reminder that life is short, that death is certain, and we don't know how long we have in this life, is the soil and the seed of gratitude. Because if we don't know how long we have, that can stir up an incredible amount of gratitude. Oh my gosh, I am so grateful that I've been with you this long. I am so grateful that I've had this amount of time to live, to love, to connect, to practice. I've had this amount of time to be with family, to be with friends. The Buddha once said, if, if it was just eternity, right, and there wasn't any death, it'd be hard to be grateful for anything because there's no contrast. It's just, you just keep having it, right? And you have it forever. And so there's no limit. So death provides a limit, which gives us a context for gratitude for really being grateful. So death contemplations are not there just because it's a true fact of human experience. Death contemplations are part of our gratitude practice, right? It's part of our gratitude practice. We have been lucky to have people in our lives for a certain amount of time. If anyone has lost a loved one, we know that sense of, wow, I'm really thankful for having them as long as I did. There is gratitude that can be cultivated in the context of a death contemplation. Now, similarly, understanding the limits of life, right? Understanding that death can happen at any time 
can also invoke compassion. It invokes compassion in this way. Oftentimes, the Buddha says, if something in your life is going awry, especially if you're disliking or hating on somebody, right? If you're looking at another being or a circumstance or a situation, and you really have a lot of aversion towards it, remember that person is going to die. That person is limited in time and space. Everything arises and passes away. And that can allow us a little bit more sense of compassion for other beings. Because oftentimes when we're hating on someone and we're averse to somebody, we're reifying them, we're objectifying them, we're making them solid and eternal as an image. When you remember that everybody on the planet, right here, right now, will not be here in 150 years. Everybody on the planet right now will not be here. All of this arises and passes away. And that can stir up a real sense of connectivity and love and empathy for fellow humans. The other thing it does is it gives urgency to love. It gives urgency to love other people. When we can really get in touch with the fact that life is short and death is certain, and we really become present to that, we can invoke an urgency to love and let people who we love know that we love them, right? To actively love with the time that we have, knowing that that time is limited. If we had 10,000 years to love on somebody, well, it's not much urgency, right? Not much gratitude. It's like, oh, I'm going to see you in 1,000 years, in 2,000 years, 10,000 years. If you can die at any time, that urgency of like, I'm going to love you as long as you're here. I'm going to be with you deeply and connected as much as I can. So we can see that death provides the context for compassion and gratitude because it sets limits to the human experience. It sets limits to our relationships. It can be used to create an urgency to live well, to love and to live kindly and to do it consistently with everybody around us because it's time limited. Similarly, it can deepen our sense of acceptance of others, acceptance of ourselves, and it can encourage forgiveness. Because life is short, it can be very helpful to think, if I'm going to forgive someone, I better forgive them now because I might not get a chance tomorrow. I might not get a chance the next day. I might not be able to tell this person or speak my truth to this person or that because, again, it's time limited. Now, most of the time, we're pushing death away, so we're not looking at our lives as being limited. We wake up every day and we presume we're not going to die. We presume everyone we care for is not going to pass away. And we engage them as if we have 10,000 years rather than not knowing how long we have. So reminding ourselves that the time is limited changes the way we relate to people. It changes the way we relate to ourselves and to others. And it can really encourage gratitude and compassion, acceptance and forgiveness. I'll tell you a story from my own family history, which has been meaningful to me, but mostly for my father, but in the context of our family. So my father lost his father when he was 18. Maybe he was 17. I think he was 17, 17 or 18. And my uh, grandfather, who I never met, of course, um, had cancer. And my, my dad and my grandpa got into an argument and my dad stormed out of the house, as the story goes, and said things that he 
that were not very nice, not very skillful. And my grandfather died shortly after before he came home. And so my dad had always taught me, like, you've got to forgive immediately. You've got to get, you you don't want time to pass because you presume when you leave a room that someone's going to be there when you get back. And that's not always the case. That's always been a profound lesson for me. It's one of the stories my dad told me about his life that I've really contemplated a lot in the context of the Dharma. Because we always presume that time is somewhat just there for us. That we're going to leave the house and our spouse is going to be there when we get back. Or that our children are going to be there and that something isn't going to happen. And so looking at it in that preciousness of the limited context of death, that allows us to love deeper and to connect more frequently and to forgive and accept and take that very seriously because that can really empower us to have more wisdom in our day-to-day experience. So looking at it as time-limited, allowing death and impermanence to be the foundation of compassion and gratitude and acceptance is really what these practices are about. And you can see it's not about darkness and negativity and pessimism. It's about love. It's about wisdom. It's about living deeper. It's the exact opposite of all that the taboo mindset tells us about death and dying. So another aspect of this, as I was saying earlier, is urgency. Really getting touch with the preciousness of life by acknowledging that we do not know how long we have creates what the Buddha calls spiritual urgency. It encourages us to practice. So if you take this from a real traditional Buddhist point of view, we are here on this planet and embodied as humans so we can awaken, right? Our highest aspiration is that we can be awake and that all beings can be awake and that we can be free and contribute to the freedom of all beings. That is the Dharma aspiration. Since we don't know how long we have, the natural inclination would be, let's practice as much as we can. Let's come together regularly and sit. Let's cultivate love. Let's cultivate Sangha. Let's get as far as we can in the Dharma with the precious moments we have to be mindful. Why would you forsake a single moment of mindfulness when you don't know tomorrow could be the day? Tomorrow could be the car accident. Tomorrow could be the aneurysm, the plane crash, the natural disaster. We just don't know. So the Buddha always talked about death as a context for spiritual practice and spiritual urgency to encourage us not to miss a single moment of mindfulness because we don't know what is going to be next. I've been on several retreats where teachers have started off the retreat by saying it is totally possible that not all of you will make it through the retreat. Someone could die. And we don't normally go to a retreat thinking I'm only going to make it three days in. Like that's just not how it's not how we think, right? That's just not it's a way that we're going to go to a retreat and say, God, I hope it, I hope I make it through day seven. That's not how we go through a retreat. But what the teacher's trying to do is remind us of the seriousness of human reality, right? Someone could have a heart attack or anything and may not make it through. We can look at that as an urgency, like, oh, I'm going to practice. I don't want to waste a single moment of my life being mindless. I want to use every single moment of my life to cultivate joy and cultivate compassion and be mindful because I don't know how long I have. So this urgency can really be a positive thing in a death contemplation. Another aspect of this 
has to do with grief and loss. And this is pretty typical for death contemplations. So much of the grief we experience when we have a significant loss is because we have not trained our minds to look at loss as a natural part of the human experience. We spend our days grasping and clinging, pushing away impermanence, denying impermanence, and we don't get in touch with the fact that loss is a part of this ride. We're gonna lose friends, we're gonna lose family, we're gonna lose our preferences, we're gonna lose access to our bodily functions at some point or maybe different points in life. We lose a lot as we walk through this journey together. Practicing contemplations around impermanence allows us, though we will grieve, it, it takes the stinging out of the grieving process. So we can grieve in a way that's much more skillful, much more healthy, and isn't as devastating. So we're preparing for the big losses by doing death contemplations when those losses are not occurring. We prepare ourselves to be skillful in the really tough times by preparing the death contemplations ahead of time to prepare for the grief and loss. One way we can do this is in the basic meditation with breathing. And I think Robert says this quite a bit in his guided meditations. I don't think I say it too often, actually, come to think of it for myself. Robert focuses on this actually quite a bit. But Robert always reminds us that when we're doing a breathing meditation, each breath has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That is where you can start with death contemplation. Reminding yourself that inside you is an arising, a peak, and a passing away with each breath, which each thought which each bodily sensation. So we can just in our basic Vipassana practice, continue to remind ourselves that everything that arises passes away. And on that very basic level, you get your foot in the door to a death contemplation because what is death but just a big impermanence, right? It's just an impermanence and we can work with impermanence every second, every moment of every day. We have access to this impermanence within us a new self, a new thought, a new feeling. So if we want to get a start into death contemplations, start with breathing. Remind yourself that each moment you are a new being coming in and out of existence, that each breath is truly a new breath. Each breath is wholly unique and exists unto itself. And the next breath, completely new being, completely new breath. And each breath is one of a kind. And it happens inside you with each moment. So we have access without even going further into some of these other things I'm going to tell you about how you can bring death contemplation into your practice. So the first way you can do this is based on what I was saying before. When you start your meditation or you end your meditation or when you start your day or end your day, this chant is helpful. Life is short. Death is certain. The time of my death is unknown. And if you can say that with the optimism of insight, with the optimism that it will bring you a sense of gratitude, you can use just that phrase to bring incredible wisdom to your day. Most of the time we start off our day and we run into our day as if we're immortal, right? I'm going to jump in the car and go to my job and do my thing and I'm presuming everyone's going to be there when I get back. 
But if we start our day with the, with the remembrance, life is short. Death is certain. The time of my death is unknown. I really want to spend this day living fully, living mindfully, and living in compassion and wisdom. Now we've got a different way of being, right? Now we're showing up as a different self. So very simple. Just the reminder of impermanence throughout your day, throughout your practice, beginning of the day, end of day, beginning of practice. Those three phrases can be a huge benefit to cultivating gratitude and acceptance, forgiveness, and love. Another thing you can do, based on the last few weeks of the body parts, you can use the body parts, and after you contemplate them, so last week we did, I think we did bones, and we did bone marrow, and I think we may have done blood. <laughs> the week before that we did, or a couple weeks before that, we did teeth, and we did hair. So what you can do is pick your body parts, do the traditional body part meditation, and then at the end, you can then take that to its logical conclusion and imagine the body wearing out, disintegrating, and dying. So you can take those body contemplations all the way to their natural conclusion, and you can imagine the decomposition of the body. Now, back in the day of the Buddha, you would go to a cemetery and you would actually watch a body decay. So it was a pretty literal exercise. But for us, we've got our imagination. It's still very powerful. We can take our body contemplations and just take them to their logical conclusion. You can also take walks in a cemetery graveyard because taking walks when you can see headstones and see names, it really brings home the fact that there are people who used to be here that are not. And you can do walking meditations. Gratitude practice in a cemetery or graveyard can be very powerful. I like to do this towards the beginning of the year. Ah, here's a good one. Okay. This is a um, verbal fabrication, as we call it, a reflection. If you found out that this was your last month on the planet, how would you live? If you found out this was your last week on the planet, how would you live? And then if you found out it was your last day, how would you live? That contemplation combined with loving kindness practice can be really fruitful. This is something you can do throughout your year. This is something you can do at regular intervals and say, you know, every two or three months, I'm just going to sit down and really be grateful for life by getting in touch with, if I really found out that I only had a few more hours, a few more weeks here, what would be meaningful to me? What is incomplete? How would I really want to show up in my life with my family, my friends, my children, if I really knew? And because we don't know, we're always faced with that possibility, right? It's uncertain. We really don't know. The day before we find out that we have a terminal illness, we think we have 20 years. We just don't know. So doing this kind of contemplation when it's not actually happening prepares us for really big news, really big stresses, really big losses. So this, those three questions are really powerful done together. So you can sit down, meditate for five minutes, and then ask the question, if this were my last month, how would I live? Who would I want to forgive? Who would I want to, to tell I love them, I forgive them, I cherish them? And go down the list, week, month, day, and see how that changes over time. It's really a cool practice. 
out of context, it might seem very dark and pessimistic, but in the context of this talk, you can see that it's something that's designed to bring wisdom and joy. I think those are the main ones that I wanted to, to bring to you. Those are the main ones. The body parts taken to their natural end, walking or any type of meditation in graveyard cemetery, um, the chant, life is short, death is certain, time of death is unknown, and then asking yourself how you would be and show up if you knew that time was limited. So I hope, you know, for tonight you can come away with a sense that these contemplations are intended to be nourishing, right? They're intended to be nourishing. It doesn't mean they won't be disheartening at times. It could trigger something. It could make you sad, thinking or reminiscing about a loved one, or perhaps the fear of your own death and passing. It might be something that comes up, which is fine. But the ultimate goal is for us to use it as a healing bomb for that fact, right? It's to take um, the fact of impermanence that we experience every day and to turn it into something that can be fruitful for practice. So I hope that was helpful. I hope some of those frameworks can be helpful for you. All right, my friends. Lovely to see you. Lovely to be with you. Let's... Uh return to presence for a minute or two so we can remind ourselves of our aspiration for loving kindness for all beings. Let's just sit back for a few more minutes before we end and remind ourselves why we are here in practice. So we've been doing listening, hearing, thinking, feeling, Take a long, slow, deep breath in, in through the nose and out through the mouth, relaxing the body intentionally on the exhale, falling back again into wakeful sitting, wakeful breathing, sensations of embodied being here in the present moment. Let us take a minute or two to remind ourselves that we always practice first and foremost for our own freedom, but we do this for the highest aspiration of the freedom of all beings. Our highest wish is that all beings are free from suffering. All beings feel safe and secure. All beings know true love true kindness, true wisdom in this lifetime. We practice for ourselves so we can show up, bringing light into the world, so that we can show up with wisdom and compassion, and that our presence in the world becomes benevolent. Each waking moment showing up with wisdom and compassion for the sake of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings know grace and ease. May all beings know true freedom in this lifetime. And in this moment, I would invite you to consider 
If you could have one wish that would come to pass for all beings, what would it be? In this moment, what wish would your heart offer to all beings if it could come to pass? What is your wish for the world? What is the kindness you would offer? beings be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you, my friends, for a joyous evening. Thank you so much for showing up. I'm always so inspired to practice with you all. It is such a great joy in my life to be with you week to week. 